You're listening to the Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we'll be talking about all things tech and I'm joined by my fellow presenter Paul Armstrong who's author of Disruptive Technologies. Good morning Paul. Morning. Oh, very perky. <laughs> very, very perky. Um, and today we're being joined by Paul Miller of Bethnal Green Ventures and um, going around talking to people in tech they go, oh we must speak to Paul Miller. Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. Oh, we must speak to Paul Miller. Beth- oh, he's, he's a mover and shaker. What do you think about that, Paul? What have I done? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we're going to find out. So it's very good that you should say that. because You shook and moved people. Mm, mm. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background of um, Bethnal Green Ventures. Um, it's an early stage investor for founders using technology to change people's lives for the better. And we're hearing more and more about tech for good. I think there's a lot of stuff we see in the media about how tech is a bad thing and you know, how it changes elections even. And, um, you know, kids are maybe watching too much of it, stuff around porn, all sorts of things. But actually, there's there's more and more things that we're seeing which, which shows that tech is solving huge social problems and, and all sorts of other problems. So you've got sort of talented teams that launch and grow tech for good ventures um, that, do, you know, you're searching those out, I think, to improve literally millions of lives, but also get returns for investors. So those two things go side by side. Now, I know twice a year you run a sort of 12-week accelerator program. How, how does that work? Do you just pick people that sort of walk off the street? Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> uh, not quite, no. I mean, uh, twice a year we, we open up and try and get the word out as, as widely as we can to people who've, who really understand particular problems, to be honest. So we're looking for people quite often who've got experience of something. Yeah, they might have had... Um, I don't know, a bad experience in with, with health or education or um, they might have a deep experience of a problem in energy or transport or whatever it might be. And um, we look for those people, we get them to apply. We usually get about 200 applications every time we open up that, that call. Uh, we shortlist that down to about 40 that we interview and then we pick the top 10, roughly speaking, each 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 six months and invest £20,000 into each of those teams. And so they're, they're complete startups and, yeah. and some presumably have never had a business before and others may have had yeah, numerous it's a, it's, businesses Yeah, it's a really diverse bunch. There's <coughs> definitely no expectation that you've run a, a startup or a business before. Um, we get you know, former teachers, former nurses, uh, social workers, all, all a real mixture of, of people uh, applying. Um, and they are quite often, they've usually shown that there's something possible. So it's, it's, it's usually more than just an idea, but it might be a prototype or a, an early product. Um, we're not expecting people to come in with a fully formed business or fully formed product. Or it might be something that they've worked on for another company and, and decided they want to take it in a direction that they're happier with. It could be, yeah. We sort of, <coughs> we've seen a few spin-outs, um, actually a few spin-outs from the NHS, for example, where it, um, I think people find it a little bit difficult to, to, to be super want. innovative inside the NHS and, and other companies as well. But um, yeah, the majority of, of times, I think it is people coming up with stuff outside of their organisation uh, and then thinking, OK, where do I go to get some support, to get some money to, to really try this out, to really push it forward and see whether it's going to work or not. And, and how do you judge who should be on your programmes? Because you get hundreds of people applying. Um, so how, I mean, how do you sort of put against each other you know well this one's going to solve some horrendous health problem and this mm. one's going to solve you know something else over here how, how can you put those two things side by side and make a decision so the first question is 
is it going to, or can we believe that it's going to have that positive social impact and at scale? So the millions of people thing is a really important uh, criteria for us. So is that literal then? Yeah. I mean, um, if you look at something like Doctor Doctor that we funded, which is a smart appointment system in the NHS, now being used by millions of people, millions of NHS patients and saving hospitals millions of pounds every year. Um, So we are literally looking for things where it benefits millions of people. Um, And then I guess once we've got over that point, we're okay. well, what's the could it be a could it be a high growth business as well? So not just the social impact at scale, but could it be a business that, that scales as well? Um, and then once we've got over that, then we're really, really looking at the team. So, you know, we're really trying to understand, do they, do they have a, you know, a unique understanding of this problem that means that they're the right people to try and address it? Uh, do they have the skills to design a product and really listen to customers and users and, 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 and build something that people so, want? So they might not be technologically brilliant, but they, they absolutely understand this issue inside out. Yeah. They, ha- they haven't seen it from above or from the side. That They've been in it or worked in it in some way and then they really understand it and want to try and find how to solve some Absolutely. of Absolutely, but, uh, but we are also looking for the tech skills in the team as well. So typically when teams come to us, they're two or three people. You, you sometimes see that it's that mixture of tech and understanding the problem or it might be a mixture of tech, understanding the problem and a business person or a designer or... Um, or, or another member of the team as well. But yeah, typically the teams, when they come in, are two or three people, sometimes a few more, but but, mm. but usually two or three people. So can you give us a, a couple of examples that you're very proud of? <laughs> uh, we're proud of all of the... I, I know <laughs> you are, but right. just off the top of your head. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so um, interesting one um, in the last cohort, actually, that's just finished, uh, was uh, a team called Labour Exchange, who are trying to make uh, temporary and low-paid work work for everyone um, and, and be better. So what they do is they help people who've got maybe not enough hours of work at the moment. So they might be on a low hours or a zero hours contract um, and they might have kind of family commitments and so on that mean that they can actually only work at particular times of the, the week. Now, it turns out that actually there's quite a lot of big companies who are really struggling to hire people at times when they need them, coming up to Christmas, warehouse work, all those sorts of things. What Labour Exchange do is match the availability of people who need more work but can only do it at certain times with big companies who need help at particular times. It's going incredibly well. It just seems to be something where they've, they've really found this niche where they can improve the earning income of low-paid workers but also improve, like, you know, the, the, the way that... Um, Big companies relate to those those employees because they can they offer them um, trade union membership. They offer them like you know living wage and all those kinds of things. That's working really well. And and that's the sort of business where it will work well because it, it suits both sides. It's not exactly. just one sided. And that's when the best business ideas work. Definitely, and that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for things where it's just socially good or you know and 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 it, but it can't make any money. It can't. It doesn't have a business model. We're looking for things where it really has got a business model that you know, catches the imagination of both sides, if you like, uh, but also has a positive social impact. But there's a lot of people politically who would say um, it shouldn't have to make money. If, if it's a good thing, hmm. it shouldn't have to make money. You know, the state should pay for it or something or whatever. Yeah. Or it should be a charity or whatever. But actually the reality is if somebody's not going to make money out of it at the same time, and that doesn't mean it has to be exploitative, by the way, then then it's not going to be sustainable, is it? There's, there is a role for those kind of organisations. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm not, not... Of course there I is. I mean, there's... Um, but as, as a new startup is exactly. what I'm saying. And I think um, what we're trying to do is, is back those organisations where there's both. I mean, I think there are there are... There's quite a lot of support actually out there for 
uh, for charities that want to get going using technology and, and and that's fine that's great and there's definitely some places where the state should be paying for it we're not arguing with that i guess we're trying to like support the people who've got a slightly different view and where they want to do what's you know profit and purpose at the same time those those are the people that we're really looking to, to help profit and purpose that's a good phrase don't you think paul yeah i like it mm. i think there's um i think there's got to be a bit more of that really and i think you're starting to see that in corporate labs and that sort of stuff where it's coming through like we've got to look good guys <laughs> you know but actually mean it this time but actually mean it exactly be authentic know, yeah, yeah i think there's a lot of um incubators and accelerators within different organizations and externally that have figured out that like yeah this isn't a badging exercise it's not just pr mm. that we're sort of doing we've actually got to do something and you're seeing a lot of them go away for that reason as well because they, they realize oh it's really hard actually it costs a lot of money and yeah. we've, we've got to invest a lot in this it's hard so yeah so so you run um you select 10 teams uh, you run a 12-week accelerator program you provide intensive mentoring and support mm-hmm. i'd like to know what that is in a minute um and then you also invest £20,000 in exchange for 6% equity, if I've got that, plus they can get access to a further 50000 and co-working space in London. So how did you how did you refine this and work out that that's the, the sort of optimum way of getting these 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 companies to where they should be? Yeah, I think um, the the original amount of money that we invest is, is we, we don't want to invest too much because these are really risky ventures and we, you know, we, it has to be an amount that that we're willing to lose to be to be brutally honest and um but then 20 that's so a bet it's not a bet i, I would never i never call <laughs> calculate never risk. call an investment okay, calculate, bet. okay got you um yeah i think it's but it's there to be supportive to those founders so it's it's enough just about to live on in london for three or four months to like to, to um, and that's important because we we want it to be there. So it's, we're, we're not being selective based on just people's financial means. So, you know, you, you shouldn't have to be looked after by your, you know, your parents or have a, had a high paid job before in order to do Bethnal Green Ventures. Anybody should be able to do it. And that's really important to us. Because it's the idea that counts. <laughs> Definitely. And, mm. and, and, and people's skills rather than their background. Um, mm. And I think that's that's super important. I think the the, the follow-on investment piece, so the £50,000 after the programme, that came because we just started to realise that maybe the the London investment scene, the tech investment scene, wasn't quite ready for this. So we weren't finding that... um, We we were actually finding that there's lots of angel investors who are interested in this, but we were finding that there weren't that many who were willing to lead around straight after an accelerator programme for things like this. So So you must bridging. Exactly. We we started uh, investing so as we could... um, yeah, show that we we think these are these are really great ventures that are going somewhere, and we started to find that that then affected other angel investors and other investors who would come in, um, you know, more quickly afterwards if we if we provided that initial fine funding that meant that their teams didn't run out of money. Just got a bit of oxygen to keep going exactly. before, yeah. before they do that. So, so tell us about your twelve week accelerator program. What does that actually contain? What what are the things that you know you have to get these these guys to go through yeah so i think there's there's, um there's three main elements to it one is um i guess learning so you know workshops and um uh, sort of bringing founders in who've done it before to come and sort of share their experience with 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 the founders in that program and that that could be about anything finance marketing definitely yeah i mean it really it has three main focuses i guess so first up is like really understanding the problem and your users so looking at the sort of how to do user research how to how to build a product that people are going to really love 
The second is more about the, I guess, the, the finance and the business model and how you, so how you can go from a few customers to a lot of customers. And finally, it's about communicating your business to, to, to other people. So that's, you know, in, pitching for investment or uh, sort of how do you build a community, all those kinds of things. So those are the three themes, I guess, that we do in the, the learning side of what we do. Mm. The next element is peer support. So uh, I think people underrate this from programs like ours is actually the fact that we put 10 teams in a room together has a huge impact. And so that the fact that you can be surrounded by other founders who are similarly motivated, they might be working on a different problem, but they've you know, they got this profit with purpose edge to them. So helpful to the, to the founders. And um, that's an important part of that 12 weeks. And we really try to build that up and try to get them to support each other during that period. And then finally, they get um, uh, office hours with one of the BGV team every week. And the real reason for that is because we've got pretty good networks into mentors or investors and all those kinds of things. So each week we sit down with them and basically unblock any problems that they've got. So they come and tell us, OK, we're stuck on this or, you know, we really need help in this. And, mm. and we can help navigate our networks to connect the, that venture to the right people. And that 12 week program, 12 week program, is that sort of literally standing up and bit classroomy or, or, or you're giving people projects to work through so just a mix of things it's not projects no they're they're, um, they're definitely working on their startup yeah. during that okay. period but it's, so it's very practical learning yeah. it's based on what they're trying to do it's we, we don't do anything that we that we feel is kind of hypothetical or um not n- not necessarily relevant and they're welcome to not come to the things if they don't think they're relevant yeah, sure. but but they all do because i think we've um, over the years we've managed to refine that program and design it in such a way that it is really relevant to to teams who are at that stage mm-hmm. building a community paul that that's one of the hardest things isn't it i mean i know you, you you're actually quite successful at it but god it's hard to do and and it takes longer than people think it takes a lot longer than people think mm-hmm. um i mean the communities we're building at the moment, TNN, the new normal, is um, an interesting one because it doesn't ever have to be big. So that's based in, uh, well, it's an online Slack community at the moment. So instantly you above average knowledge of uh, technology and that sort of thing for being on Slack, although it is growing. Um, and yeah, it's just an info feed and that sort of stuff. But to get people to actually network and become a community, you almost have to like guide them with two hands and sort of push them to each other and that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, even just building a Twitter feed and like making sure you've got the right tone of voice and that sort of stuff. It's interesting because incentivization is something you can use, but not all the time to build the right community and that. So you've got to find the right mix and certainly for the right um, audience that you're doing. And but, it's, it's time consuming. It's oh, really time consuming. So, yeah, you know, like double at least the amount of time you need. You think you, you think, need to spend on yeah, it. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. I'm interested to know, do brands and agencies ever like come to you and be like, hi, how much money do you need? And, uh, you know, just like wave money in front of you and try and work with you or is there a way or that's something you're never interested in or... I wish. Um, no. <laughs> um, I mean, we work with quite a few companies and, and um, I think there is there is growing interest in what we do. There's, a, there's also quite a lot of companies where they... Uh, uh, they're genuinely interested in the products that the startups are, that are coming up with, um, and that's 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 interesting because I think you're seeing companies who see actually we need a bit of profit with purpose in our offering. Mm. So it's you know they want they want to work with our startups to to to, to improve their offering to customers or to, to new customers mm. as well. Um, so yeah, we do get quite a lot of inbound inquiries. Um, we haven't had we haven't had any companies invest. Um, well, not in in Bethnal Green Ventures. There's some companies that have invested in some of our startups, mm-hmm. but um, no, we haven't to date. We haven't had any companies invest in BGV itself. Is so that so something I'm, you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested. I, but it's got to be it, it. 
it's got to work in terms of they've got to, we've got to genuinely believe that they're motivated by both the social purpose and the financial return. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really willing to compromise on that, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. Because so, I have a thing about startups, and I've written, written about it before Forbes a couple of times, is that people grossly underestimate the amount of PR they've got to do for it, or their marketing budget is zero, and they think that's a badge of pride. And I think that's a badge of stupidity for most <laughs> people, because you see some people and you sort of go, you've got a bloody good idea there and you're spending nothing to promote it it's just like friends and family retweets and all of that sort of thing and no real sense of what it actually takes to get sort of moving in the day and there is an argument to say well if i can't generate a hockey stick on my own then i'm never going to get that sort of growth anyway and i just don't think that's true i think you've got a real opportunity to like get out there and do um, some really interesting and creative promotions these days with the platforms that you've got but i'm interested to see how you guys help your people understand promotion and its power and that sort of thing yeah, so it, it's it's very much on a case by case basis. So if you're you know, working with the NHS, for example, which we have a number of teams, there's, there's you know the sales pattern of that is is very particular to mm. the NHS. Uh, but if you're a kind of consumer facing sort of you know some, somebody like um, Bright Little Labs, who you had on, I think with the Sophie and Detective Dot, they're like you know the marketing is maybe you know there's other people you can look to to work out how did they do it, mm. and, and it's and it's a bit more straightforward in some ways. So we have to do it on a case-by-case basis. And some of them, yes, like they really do need to spend money. And a large part of what they do is customer acquisition. But, you know, that customer acquisition then generates a, a social impact. Mm-hmm. So we do do it on a case-by-case basis. I think maybe there's some uh, investors where they're so vertically focused, if you like, that they can just do the same for everybody. Right. <laughs> uh, but we're not in that, that, not in mm-hmm. that bucket, I don't mm-hmm. think. So tell us about how it all, all started. Because you've been going for a little while mm. um, and you're an LLP. Mm. Uh, so why did you choose that structure and, and how, how did you get going? So um, we actually started out in 2008. So although we, we, we just had our fifth birthday, so, you know, that's a bit confusing. Right, what happened there? <laughs> um, so actually in 2008, we started running Hack Weekends, uh, which were actually quite rare at that time. I mean, there weren't very many, you know, this was pre-startup weekend and all those sorts of things. And um, But these weekends were where we'd bring together people who understood social problems and technologists and, you know, you, you kind of get the picture. They were, mm. called, they were called social innovation camps and um, they we ran them five times in the UK. Uh, the first one was in Bethnal Green. You can maybe sort of guess where so our I name guess came that from. one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, they were just super successful and they were really attracting super talented people. That's what we noticed. So there was, you know, these were some of the best of the best in terms of engineering talent and design talent. Um, and at the end of the weekend, everybody, well, not everybody, but you'd get people coming up to us saying, well, how do I quit my job and turn this into a startup? Um, and at about the same time, uh, the startup I'd been working on wasn't working. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was doing a research project for uh, Nesta about accelerator programs where they very kindly uh, sort of, you know, uh, paid me to go to the US and go and hang out at Y Combinator and Techstars and just see how that model worked. And I wrote a report that was called Startup Factories. Uh, which I think, you know, certainly popularised the idea of accelerator programmes in in Europe. Um, And I came back and I was like, well, we've got this community of people who want to use their tech skills for for social good. And I understand a bit about this investment model now. Why don't we put the two together? And that's that's where Bethnal Green Ventures came from. I'm glad you failed. (laughs) And the reason why I say that is I think think it's just you just learn more. Actually, you learned that. certainly one way of not doing it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, one I've, more than you ever. Yeah, and uh, I've been in business for quite a long time, and I've I've, I've learned quite a lot about what I, I don't want to do, mm-hmm. and 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 watched other people do things, and going definitely not doing it like that. Um, and it's just as important to work out what not to do as as what 
you know, as it is to work out what to do. So yeah. both those things. And I think understanding how it feels for it to not work out yeah. as well is an important um, thing for, for me with our founders. I mean, we've backed 100 ventures now, you know, quite a lot of them haven't worked out. And just, just knowing what it feels like for it to not work mm. out is, is quite a useful thing. And what's so, your percentage at the moment of ones that have worked out? So, well, it, it, it's difficult because we're still early days, really, in terms of uh, five years in. But uh, there's about 65 of them that are active. Nice. Um, uh, you know, how many are going to work out in the long run? We don't know yet. But yeah. um, but certainly it's, it's looking pretty good. And we've, there's some very, very strong ones uh, that, you know, it's, it's looking looking very um, positive. So, so you get to sort of, you've got 2012, you've, you've set all this up. Yep. <coughs> who, who have you been working with and, and where are you? So now, um, so um, in 2012, uh, we managed to raise a little bit of money to invest in some ventures, so to try this accelerator program model, and that was from Nesta, and um, they put up 150,000 pounds at the time, and um, Google Campus was just opening up in Shoreditch, and um, uh, by I, I, by luck, I think they came across the idea that we just opened our call for ideas and. Um, and they called up and said, do you want an office? And we thought, well, that'd be nice because <laughs> uh, we, we hadn't actually planned on giving office space to the ventures that year because we hadn't got any you know, money to do that uh, So other than to, to invest. Um, but we did. And that changed our model, to be honest. So we moved, we left Bethnal Green and we moved to Shoreditch um, and we put those six teams through through the accelerator program that year. And it worked very well. And to be honest, we just needed a vehicle to, to put it in. And that's hence the LLP at that mm-hmm. stage. Um, and... Um, we the, the partners in the LLP were um, us as the team um, and uh, our not-for-profit that we'd set up as a kind of, you know, sort of BGV trust, effectively, um, and then Nesta, who'd put up the capital to invest in the teams. And, and for those who don't really understand what an LLP is, it's a limited liability partnership, uh, which is actually the model that most accountancy firms and, and, and law firms take, yeah. in which that each person... Is, 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 who is a partner, but is a person in their own right, um, yes. as opposed to a limited company, which is which is a vehicle on its own. So, so you're, you're a set of partners um, yep. who, who come together under this umbrella, and you're very engaged in the decision making as well. So, um, you know, the the, the partners and it is uh, that is the way that we work. Is you know, um, Nesta, uh, Nominet Trust, and Big Society Capital, who are our partners now, are very engaged in the way that we make decisions and the, the way that we do our investment and. and um, and that works super, super well, which is different from your more standard um, venture capital model where you um, have a, a limited partnership, just just a limited partnership, not a limited liability partnership. Um, and in that case, the the investors um, are deliberately like shielded almost from from the from the investments. Um, but that's not the case with the, the, our first fund at, at, at BGV. So you're involved. Absolutely involved. So you've been going a while now. Um, what's two things? What's most surprised you about the journey from where you began to where you are now? And what's the hardest part? Mm. Um, the nicest positive surprise has been uh, the growth in the community of people who are really interested in tech for good. Um, we didn't call it tech for good in, in 2012. It, mm. It's sort of that that name has kind of gathered currency, I guess, over the over time. But the interest in the community comes from um, uh, from both sides, well, three sides almost. So one is every time we open up applications, we get more founders interested. So that growth in the community of founders who want to use their skills for tech for good has, has, yeah, grows, goes up every year. On the other side of the equation, investors who are interested in doing profit with purpose get stronger every year. And mm. I, I, I really noticed an uptick in that this year, uh, particularly, I think. And what then, do you think that's down to? 
I wonder whether it's the tech for bad thing. Mm. Um, <laughs> and the, like 2017 has been possibly the worst year in, in history for the, the reputation of technology or digital technology anyway. Um, everything from, you know, this, this is the year when all the election hacking sort of news came out, although the election was last year. Mm. We've had all the sexual harassment claims and so on in Silicon Valley. Um, and, um, uh, and then there's, you know, everything to do with, um, you know, sort of yeah, abuse and like sort of terrorism. It, it just has mounted up so much more this year than in mm. previous years. And I wonder whether there's a bit of reaction from people who are like, I don't want to be associated with tech for bad. Mm. So deliberately going out to try and find opportunities to invest in tech for good. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that for sure, but that if it certainly it correlates in terms of what we've seen over the over time. You see, though, for me, technology is just just a medium through which, you know, or a lens through which you, you mm. encounter human behaviour. So those human behaviours are out there anyway. The fact that people are using technology in order to, to make some of those things happen is neither here nor there, actually, because because it's 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 a medium. And, yeah. and people have always done those things in the past. They just haven't done them that haven't done them through that technology. If you see yeah. what I mean. And so there isn't such a thing. It, in some respects, is technology for good or technology for bad? There's just good people and bad people. So, yeah, you know, and technology it's runs the through the amplification, though, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, and, and technology the runs through the middle of it. Mm. And, and and you know, what we've got to make sure is that that we do show that human beings are amazing and capable of mm. doing incredibly yeah. good and that, things. And that's the. I mean, the honest truth <clears> is that none of the products or services that um, that we're creating are technology on their own. Yeah. They're, they're not. They're not autonomous pieces of technology. And I think that's that very do. clear from when you started. For first started the interviews, what you're saying is we want people to understand these issues. Yeah. Mm. And then we'll try and help them solve them through technology. But the, the fact is, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, you know, come up with solutions. Yeah, and the problems and that they're finding that, that they think are really difficult. And in the successful cases, there's usually a, a whole apparatus around the technology itself, whether that's customer service or like helping people to understand it or whatever it might be. So you have a, a kind of a human and a technological system. Um, and, and that's where I think you really shape things. I mean, uh, to use a, um, you know, one example, I think actually in many ways, that's where Uber have failed so far is that the technology is amazing. But all the systems around it in terms of how they designed the way that, like, you know, sort of um, uh, it works for the drivers and all those sorts of things. In mm. terms of, that's, that's where they failed and the reputation has been damaged because of all the systems around the technology, not the technology itself. It's because of their, it's because of their strategy, though. They, they don't actually care about their employees. That's what's, that's what's their unfounding. Oh, I know. love getting into this. <laughs> no, but it serves them right. It serves well, them right. Don't that, treat people like that. Okay, um, but we have to work. remember, we have to remember, when Uber set up, it was not a full-time gig and it's not meant to be a full-time gig. This is for... Um, the term is escaping me now, but um, it's for at will work, right? And that sort of stuff. It's like, I want to work five till six. I work till five till six. Don't need a contract. Just turn my thing on. Go. Beautiful system. Beautiful system. It's illegal though, Paul. Well, it's at the moment, not, not at the moment. I'm not allowed to do that with my employees. No, but this is the thing. When you yeah. offer a new business um, model, which Uber did, it's not my job to go, oh, well, I'm going to do that full time. When they say it doesn't actually work that way, that breaks our model. And the second you start having um, the laws that we have on employees and stuff like that, it breaks that model. I'm not sticking up for Uber. I do think that they've got systemic problems in there and that sort of stuff. And the new guy is definitely coming in and trying to fix those. Mm. I do have issues with the way that they run businesses around Greyball and all of that sort yeah. of stuff. And I think that shows a lot about that company that you don't even need to 
to have words to say because it speaks volumes for itself mm. and the PR people are definitely doing a good job but you've got to have a product that you can talk positively about in order a positive product in order for it to do it but I will say that you can't expect a full-time gig out of Uber to be successful because it was never meant to be one. Yeah, yeah. You know? okay, no. um, we're just going to have a little break for, for a couple of minutes. Uh, I need a cup of tea and then we're going to come back and talk to Paul Miller again. Thank you. You've joined us at a very good time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Our savvy software development guys have just qualified for a chunky government cash payout thanks to our new friends from Breakthrough Funding. Yeah. Sorry, that just slipped out. Government handout? No, not a handout, but recognition for our clever thinking. Now it'll be down to you to help us kick it further forward. Leave it to me. Your company could qualify for Innovation Cash too. Find out online now by answering just six qualifying questions at BreakthroughFunding.com. Yeah! So I'm sitting in the um, very, very posh surroundings of Reba, right in the middle of London, uh, near Oxford Street in Regent's Park. Um, and I'm at this uh, amazing conference organised, as usual, by the wonderful uh, Sarah Luxford, talking about women in tech and, and looking at how we can get more women into the tech industry and what some of the issues are. And I'm sitting next to Henry Clark, and she works for Facebook as the client council team leader. Henry, can you tell me exactly what that means? Because I've read your stuff and I don't have got a clue. I've read through it and it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. So please explain what you, you are trying to do at Facebook. Sure, yeah, I probably should have written it in English. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I lead a, te- a team who look after the client councils that we run in um, EMEA. Well, let me explain what both of those mean. EMEA is Europe, Middle East and Africa. And our client councils are a group of individuals that we get together on a regular basis. And they sort of act like our non-exec board of directors. They are our biggest clients, so our biggest um, advertisers. And they go across a range of industries from uh, fast-moving consumer goods to gaming to travel from agencies creative and media and we ask them about what we share with them what we're doing at Facebook and we get their feedback in advance so we develop products lots of products all the time and we want to do this with the ear of business we also share with them some of the things that are going on in the world that are affecting us and we get their feedback on that because so it's literally like a non-exec board isn't it where where you've got some critical friends I I guess Mm -hmm. you've got people that you're testing some of your strategies with um, and people commenting and and you're trialing stuff with them yeah that's exactly what it is yeah and um, uh, you know the benefit to them is that they get sort of first mover advantage on the things that we're doing they get a real kind of voice is directly into the company at a very high level um, and the value to us is I mean it's you know it's enormous uh, them giving real feedback and and because we've known them over a, a, a long period of time they they give very very honest feedback and we ask for that <laughs> well that, I mean it has to otherwise it, it, it's it's not worth it is it I mean I think it's really interesting that you know we might look at uh, American and and European culture and all that but it must be great to get feedback from Middle East and East Africa because it, it, it may well have a very different perspective. Yeah, that's entirely right. So um, one of the guys who sits in our council runs a what is the equivalent to Uber in the Middle East. And we he is saying to us, well, you know, when are you going to start doing payments on through through your channels? Because in the Middle East, only 4% of people have credit cards. So they're driving a cash. Wow, I really didn't know that. And you would have... 
you wouldn't you would not make you wouldn't know would you you'd make assumption that it might be less but it's not going to be four percent i know i was i was absolutely shocked i asked them to repeat it actually um yeah so you know that they that they're saying to us when are you going to do payments and you know because it feels like a lonely world for them out there their 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 business is ride sharing and our business is creating tech and they're saying you know it'd be really helpful if you did it for us and we didn't have to do it ourselves and actually they've gone ahead and they've developed it themselves you know we, you know we have to focus on what at facebook what we is the priority for us at that time but it's definitely those the kind of discussions we have and are you finding that um, that there are some cultural differences in that, that that in some countries, and I know I'm hugely generalising here, but people might use Facebook for different reasons or you know or or, or in a different way. Yeah, yeah, that's entirely right. Um, so. Facebook um, is different depending on your where you are and your age and stuff. Um, uh, de- the most people use it to collect with, connect with family and friends, but increasingly we're seeing people use it to connect with businesses. There are large business groups that open up, so you know you can imagine a women in tech group, and I can't. I, I should actually probably know if there is one. Um, a, a TLA women in tech, and if not, I'll start one. There is. It's huge. It's two thousand members. That's embarrassing. <laughs> And it's brilliant. Okay, great. Um, uh, well, everyone who's listening now, they should join now. And, uh, and um, we do it, we're trying to do more and more at Facebook to help communities like that. And actually, we recently changed the mission of the company to be all about giving back to the community. Um, uh, because, you know, the world's a pretty tough place right now. And um, I believe, and the, the, the owners of our company believe, that uh, tech is going to help bring us closer together versus further apart. Um, we should be looking at tech for good. Of course, we should. Um, and, and when you've got already a huge network, huge community network, um, uh, it's important. And I think a lot of people love Facebook, but a lot of people are quite worried that that, that actually potentially it has a huge amount of power. But actually, if you have got that power, you can use it for good. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and that's exactly what we intend to do. So our, the mission is is to help build communities. And there are amazing stories of. There was a woman who, in the hurricanes that happened in the States the other day, she created a group that day saying, I, I've still got power, anyone need help? And within 24 hours, there were 78,000 people in that group. Um, I mean, that is the power of, that could not happen without tech. <laughs> um, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, and just, just to sort of end on, is there anything that you're very, very excited about in terms of Facebook and some of the things that you're seeing, some tech that you're seeing? You know, something that you're very, 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 I don't know, just very excited. Uh, um, on a personal level, I want to say I'm very, very excited about Instagram stories. I don't know how many of you listening in have played around with them, but it's enormously fun. And go on, go online and find yourself some Instagram stories tutorials. There's an enormous amount of tools that you can do that um, that just can make you of kind of your own little video editor in your in your home. Um, but the other thing that's just for the for the world that I'm excited about is is all the stuff that we're going to be doing to try and help communities like TLA Women in Tech help them build um, uh, even better communities that help them communicate in an easier way make uh, conversation sharing moderating of all of those kind of things easier so yeah and get, getting far more people access to tech who, who perhaps can't afford it or, or, or don't have the technical skills and I do think one of the exciting things I'm seeing that, that, that with haptics and also you know with voice recognition you are just not going to have you're going to have to be less technically able actually hopefully as we go forward not necessarily more technically able to you know take part and get engaged 
Yeah, no, I think that's entirely right. Um, and uh, the other the other thing that we are investing a lot in is, um, you know, we it's our ambition to kind of connect the world, and you can only do that if they have connectivity. And so um, we we do things like we f- we fly planes over areas where they don't have um, Wi-Fi to try and get make sure that they have Wi-Fi, because they, you know, we know that when people have access to Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi and their access to the internet, it lifts them out of poverty. Because if you can look up on the internet and you can see what the actually uh, on that cup that you have on your hand, you should be putting some some alcohol, and you don't and you don't have to walk two hundred miles to the nearest hospital. That is going to help save someone's life. I mean, that's a stunning statement, really. Is is that techno- access to technology lifts people out of poverty? I mean, and that's a word to all governments, really, isn't it? You know, what are you looking at? You really need to understand. I mean, and if you just take the UK and the lack of good broadband connectivity to rural communities uh, it needs to get sorted doesn't it yeah i mean yeah i, I definitely <laughs> you're probably not allowed to say that because it's political <laughs> but i mean i do i mean it is a stunning statement and actually of course it's true you, you know because you're raising people's ambitions you're raising yeah. their engagement you're helping with their education so get the world connected you politicians and other people out there that's what we're saying yeah no I completely agree and I I guess uh, as frustrating as slow broadband can be I think uh, the areas that really need it are those kind of those out there with who live in in poverty and actually what what a lot of them do have is mobile phones so there are actually more mobile phones in the world than toothbrushes now Um, and these people have grown up they they desk you know a computer they don't, they've never had that so desktop technology doesn't even exist with them they went straight to mobile phones and they live their lives through that so the more that we can do that you know it really does lift people out of poverty it's very exciting um, um henry clark uh, client council team lead oh my god emir your business card must be huge um in order to fill this on emir customer team facebook thank you so much for joining me <laughs> thank you very much i'm gonna go and shorten it now Listen up then, uh, we never realised that we could get a hefty government payout for innovation. Thought it was just for those high-tech boys down south, not a down-to-earth bunch like us. We did it, thanks to you lot and the really helpful guys at Breakthrough Funding. Yeah! Sorry, just slipped out. Easy money then, boss! Not at all. It's a cash reward for showing how innovative ideas can reap benefits all round. Your company could qualify for innovation cash too. Find out online now by answering just six qualifying questions at BreakthroughFunding.com. Yeah! Just had a little break there and we're back again in the studio and I'm joined by Paul Miller of Bethnal Green Ventures and my co-host Paul Armstrong. Hi there, feel better now? Yeah, nice cup good. of tea? Yes. Right, off we go again then. So so we were talking, um, Paul, about Bethnal Green Ventures and then how you've set it up and whatever. And also you've got some investment um, uh, from people like Google and, and, and Nesta. Not so much investment, actually more backing mm. you know, and, and, and support. What's your thoughts at the moment of, of people like YouTube and Google and Facebook um, trying to set up these innovation hubs, I guess, under their own umbrella? That, that's a real, I mean, I'm seeing that across all sorts of sectors at the moment, but it's a, it's a real new development, isn't it? Where they're really encouraging that sort of thing under their own roof. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the tech, the big tech companies, have, um, well, they, they were startups themselves and they, they try to remember that, don't they? So um, I think that those those big companies now have always sort of tried to encourage startups to, to work with them and so on. I guess um, the interesting thing I've seen recently is that I think they've realised that actually they can't do that on their own. So uh, They actually really realise that now? I, I think they're getting there, maybe not all of them. Right. <laughs> um, right. But the, the um, 
you, you know, if you, if you can't just magic up technology products in a, in a vacuum, you need to be talking to the people who understand the problems that that, that product is, is solving. Um, I think you've seen that a little bit actually with DeepMind and um, the way that they've had quite a backlash against their, you know, their their relationship with the NHS and, and people's medical data. Okay, sure, you know, it was they were trying to make sure it was all properly anonymized and all those kinds of things, but there's just not the level of trust in those companies. And so I think they need they they now know that they need to work in you know with partners with much more closely with organisations that have got the credibility, got the trust of people, and so on, to to address some of these big issues. But but what happens then with an organisation when they get to a certain size where they suddenly can't innovate anymore? Is it because there's too much to lose? Is it because you become less risk averse and and then you know you just think as you're going forward, oh that we, we don't you know we don't chance where we are and and therefore the the, the whole institutional thinking just becomes a bit more rigid and a a bit less fluid well there's there's different ways of innovating and um, I think actually when you go through a certain scale maybe you can't innovate as radically from within but that doesn't stop you from acquiring innovations and that's what we see so you see you know Google buying YouTube rather than developing it in-house and all those kinds of things. And that's, you know, I think that's actually great for the sector because it means that um, you have these large companies who know they need to innovate, they need to be connected to the startup world. Um, And that's a great thing for people starting companies. But but, but what happens though internally? Because if you take somebody like Justy or whatever, it's still the same people running it. Mm. So so how, how how does it happen that when it gets so big that somehow... You lose that ability to innovate. I don't, you, I don't really you, understand what's, do you know, what's well, going I, on. The, this, I think as senior management in those big companies, you're just under so much pressure on a quarterly basis to maximise you know, the profit and, the, mm. uh, and revenue. And uh, unfortunately, R&D and, and so on doesn't do that. So you need investors who are willing to look to the long term. And I think some of the big tech companies do do that. I mean, obviously, like you know, Google have a very unusual relationship with this, with with the stock market in terms of their outrageously long term for for, <laughs> for most investors. Same with Amazon, actually. You know, Jeff Bezos like really pushes that. Um, and and Zuckerberg has a slightly strange um, setup in terms of he can he has real control of the company in a way that you know, most shareholders probably uh, wouldn't think was normal. So that they're actually set up to be more long term than most companies, but they're still under immense pressure every quarter to deliver returns, and that makes you focus on the short term. And um, yeah, I think it, it takes a, a really great company to actually think, okay, well, where are we going to be in ten years' time? Where are we going to be in twenty years' time? Uh, but it's incredibly hard, um, and. I think that, that that's the reason why they're so interested in startups. And also just you know, bringing it back to the sort of BGV world, actually it's why they're interested in the tech for good startups as well, because mm. over that kind of time period, yeah, climate change is going to be worse. We're going to have a hugely different demographics. We're going to have like different health problems, all those kinds of things. They can't think about all these things themselves, but they know that they're going to need to be great corporate citizens in you know, 10, 20 years time. So they need to be on top of what are the things that people are addressing? What are the problems mm-hmm. that people think are going to get worse and that are going to be uh, opportunities for startups to, to get involved? So I think that's where the interesting stuff comes is, is companies who know that they've got to have solutions for the long term, but 
maybe in the short term they're under such pressure that they they can't do it themselves. Paul, have you got thoughts on that? I mean, yeah. it's just a dilemma, isn't it? Because I, I think it is, but it's easy to forget when these corporate giants, that, that's, the, that's the word to remember, they are giant. They have hundreds of thousands of people doing lots of different things. It becomes very easy to trip over your own toes in that sort of sense. You know, yes, you can um, have three different arms of artificial intelligence and that sort of stuff. If they're not talking together and then you've got regulation on it and that sort of stuff, it's very easy to mess things up and actually come off worse from it. And that's what they're definitely trying not to do. But also when you've got so many companies Companies, the impact around those, you could create something huge, but you've got to be very careful not to do that as well sometimes because you'll get regulation too soon or people will start having a scrutiny. So again, got to grow in the right way as well. And I think a lot of people forget that once those companies get to a certain size, yeah, stakeholders are very important, but also, as you, to your point, Paul, it's like thinking about the future and the one they've got to build and that sort of stuff. But it's very easy to mess yourself up internally if you don't do it right. So so, so in, in essence, it's, it's to do with size because, because if you make a decision, so if I make a decision with 20 20 people you know we can pivot and, and do that quite quickly because I can communicate it to those people and get them to understand and maybe there's not quite as much at risk but if you've got hundreds of thousands of people how do you how do you move your business that quickly because you've got to get all those people to move with you it's yeah. quite hard isn't it and there's costs involved in all of that isn't there time resources money you know intellectual property lawyers you know and that sort of stuff it all it all takes a toll and it's not as easy as people think to suddenly go oh we'll have an incubator over there and that sort of stuff or let's but, start up three but new why, companies so why isn't it though because if you, okay well we'll have an incubator that's got its own culture we'll let them get on with whatever they want to do you know we'll let them do this but those don't seem to be working either, even though that feasibly that they're allowed to be a small little business mm. inside. They don't seem to be working either. I don't know. I think I think it's difficult to always say that things aren't working or are working because we never get the full picture with these True. big companies. Mm. I think that's the biggest issue. Um, but when you also think about um, corporate uh, R&D and that sort of stuff, a lot of them do have their separate units for a really good reason, you know, tax write-offs and all that sort of stuff. But also it's just easier to work outside the beast until you have to be the beast. Um, but I, I find more and more as these companies uh, have the innovation hubs to the left hand side say it doesn't know what it's doing with the other side you know you talk to a lot of people and go oh I think we're doing something in that and like, oh no it was shut down three years ago and that sort of stuff so you know this fail fast mentality if it doesn't filter through you know the argument is you're not getting the benefits so even mm -hmm. though you've got Google Ventures and uh, Google Campus and that sort of stuff it's still very interesting to figure out what are they going to look like in five to ten years you know are they thinking about the right problems to solve and I think that's why organisations like BGP are so important because they're almost like um, a public conscious um, you know and that sort of stuff so I, I'm interested to see where, where all of them go you know you've got tons of money and opportunity in Google but equally they're always terrified about the people that are coming and doing stuff from their um, garages that's what they always publicly say or well, someone said publicly years ago but I'm always interested in the ones that they should be worried about the garages with rocket fuel up their ass, which I think is a bit like the BGV model mm. and, and, and do you think they're going to carry on doing those those sort of hubs and 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 working with people like yourself i don't see how else they're going to make it happen yes i, I mean so, so, so we don't have any direct support from uh, from google where i mean we're very friendly with uh, with parts of the company but um our investors are actually more uh, generally uh, impact investors who are you know independent from the from the from the tech world directly um but uh, the growth seems to be pretty huge i mean they've opened up campus <coughs> in lots of different cities around the world um i think you know Facebook are also thinking of sort of doing a much more, uh, much bigger startup program from what I hear. Amazon certainly, you know, sort of um, do a lot of work with startups because they use their products in terms of, you know, EC2 and all those mm. sorts of things. So th those big companies have lots to do with startups. And I don't see that, uh, that trend 
changing anytime soon. I think they're, they're going to do more and more in that world, if, if I'm honest. Mm. And just finally, you know, if you were going to go into an area yourself now and, and, and start a, you know, do a start-up, what's, what's, what sort of areas are exciting? I know we're talking for tech for good, but what sort of areas are really exciting you at the moment where you, you would definitely pile in if you, if you, if you had a chance and, and, and try and find something interesting? I think there's so much work to be done around climate and uh, energy and like just re- just reducing the environmental impact of the activities we already have and and software is going to be a huge part of that i think we've you know we actually know all of the basic technologies for you know generating energy with zero uh, zero carbon impact and all those kinds of things it's coordinating that's the problem um, and i think there's going to be a huge growth in software and companies that enable us to use the technology which we already have to basically pull the rug out from underneath polluting technologies mm. um, and that's in climate in water in like just the, the material use of, of all of our, all of the things that we do day to day um, so that's where I, I think there's going to be a huge amount of growth in that in the next 10 years and, and in terms of health things that you yeah I mean surely tech must you know, got to dismantle the, the way the NHS buy things and, and, and procure things so that so that some of the incredible advances in technology actually get through to the NHS, which we know so many of them aren't. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think there's the, the one big barrier I see in the way that the NHS is structured at the moment is that it's a national illness service rather than a national health service. So mm. uh, preventative measures, things that actually stop us from getting ill, just don't get prioritised. And at some point, we've got to shift that over. And whether that is that that funding for that comes from the NHS or maybe from outside, I don't know. But um, actually, I think the majority of positive impact you could have with tech on the, the health of the nation or the health of like sort of people around the world comes from preventative uh, rather than, you know, treating it when there's a real problem. We've been pretty good at that for quite a while. But, um, you know, preventing these things from happening in the first place and new things from happening because of our lifestyles. Uh, but that's, doesn't, that's doesn't that just important. mean that people live longer, which makes it worse? Well, we've also got to look at... You know, what, Certainly if we don't have a cure well, for I, Alzheimer's. Yeah, <laughs> but, but surely, though, if, if people live to 90 or 100, it actually exacerbates the problems. So we should be encouraging people to smoke and eat a lot and, and be unhealthy. <laughs> and they all die at 14. Well, we need to ask some fundamental questions <laughs> about why we're alive, don't we? You know, yeah, no, like and of yeah. course I'm being entirely flippant, but, but, <laughs> but you know, you can only pre- use preventative stuff for so long and then, you you know, as you get older, your body's going to pack up at some point and some bits of it are going to fall off. Right. So, it depends so, who you listen to in Silicon Valley these days in terms of whether we're going to live forever and all that yeah. kind of thing. I, right. I don't, I'm not a big believer in all of that kind of thing, but I, we do need to also look at what's a good death. And mm. you know, actually, how do we uh, think about end of life um, and and so on? Because um, yeah, it's taboo. We don't like talking about it, but it's 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 going to be a big issue. And um, yeah, that demographic change again is something that you know I just don't think our economy or our institutions are really set up for the way that that we're going to age as a population, particularly in the in, in Western Europe and Japan and uh, yeah, North America as well. You, you were just going, ooh, then, Paul Armstrong. Yeah, no, I just thought of a term that I haven't ever heard, and I'm sure it's a vape, that doesn't mean anything, but um, death tech. You hear a femtech, death and that's what I... There must be something, Excellent. surely. Death tech, well, that's quite a serious topic. That's Very serious, but, you know, again, it's one of those... Th- well, death femtech tech. has blown my mind recently. I was recently on another podcast talking about LV and Clue and those sorts of people, and... Um, uh, MHP Communications put it on and it was just absolutely fascinating the the scale at which they've got issues of things like really horrible stuff to talk about but equally it like affects more than just women sometimes but you've got incontinence you've got like period pain all of that sort of stuff but way beyond and um, the the amount of money that we added up 
that they've seen in it is just over a billion dollars and it just pales into insignificant. I think it's like less than 1% of what the other technologies get and yet they're 75% spending power, 52% of the world. You're like, oh, guys, come on, we need to do something. Welcome to being a female, Paul. Well, I've written about female tech for a number Mm. of years and that sort of stuff and I've never really equated the term femtech with it and that sort of stuff. But I definitely, it's well on my radar now, so it's definitely something Mm. I'm interested in. There's a huge amount of power and money there if you can solve some of those problems. We are seeing some good stuff on the uh, Tech Talk 22. We saw some good stuff that have been designed ground zero upwards for you know for, for women yeah um, where do we find that again uh techradar.com tech ra- okay, right. mm. um, so that's good um yes death tech mm. Mm. i mean i, I th- what a think spectrum we've done today <laughs> yes, i think it's a real uh there's a real movement for for helping people at home who are on their own and mm. technology is making massive strides in that isn't it paul yeah i mean we've um we've funded a really great startup called connectus that helps uh, domiciliary carers to to do their jobs much more easily and to provide much more information to families and friends of uh, of people who are who, who get domiciliary care and coordinate that much better because uh, it's it is a growing sector but it's also a sector that's under huge pressure because you know um it, it's very people intensive you know you need carers um, and I think we we also have to get right away from this idea that all tech should like destroy jobs, like the, you know that we the, the way that tech you build a business in tech is to remove employment. Mm. Actually, I think we'd, what what we'd like to see much more of is technology that enhances employment and then it potentially creates more jobs, but more sustainable jobs. Uh, but if you look at the you know the sort of current narrative about what technology does, that's certainly not the case. But that's the media not understanding and just taking snippets of stuff and and you know scaremongering, which is incredibly unhelpful as usual. Yeah, I think there's there's, there's <clears throat> well, a bit. Actually, we're going to free people up to really use their brain power to solve some of the problems and do do much nicer stuff than, yeah. than grunt work, which hopefully is what technology is about. Yeah, you know, that's I think... what technology is about: is take away the horrible stuff we don't want to do, and free up the amazing capacity of human beings to, to come up with ideas and sure. you know, use their, their brain power. And I think it, but I think it is really important that tech companies, tech startups as well, consider themselves as like, you know, what, how are we going to be a great employer? How are we going to be like a great kind of institution actually that people are proud to work of, that pr- proud to work for? Um, and, you know, go back to some of those, um, some of the great like industrial like innovators, paternalistic, yeah, a bit, in I a think, way, mm, a bit. But yeah, I, don't, I, think, I don't mean that in a condescending. Exactly, way. I think that's we've we've come to see that as be condescending, but it's not. You know, actually, that was that was a response to change. It being was, ethical it, and, exactly. and, and being being a responsible employer, being mm. a responsible company, um, and developing services that uh, that enhance people's lives and enhance their uh, you know their employment. I think is something that I'd love to see more in the tech industry, but uh, unfortunately, like. Actually, the, the past history is almost like people associate it with eroding employment rights and eroding like the, the perks or, you know, well, not, but the, the, the sort of the, the additional things but you if, get around employment. But if you do see people getting cross with Uber and others who, who aren't doing um, good employment practices, it, it does bite you eventually. So, so, so it's not actually a very good strategic corporate move. I, I agree. But um, I think, um, the, again, it's this short term pressure, whether that comes from the markets in terms of you know, quarterly results or whether it comes from... Uh, venture capitalists who want to, to to see the value go up at a, a particular rate you're under a lot of financial pressure as a as a tech startup and i think we need to maybe think okay well what's the what's the social pressure as much as what's the financial pressure and actually having investors who are willing to sort of push you on okay what's your what's your social impact 
as well as you know where's my mm. money because um, employees are doing that so investors need to absolutely i think mm. you've seen a huge shift in the generations in terms of like people who just won't work for companies where they don't feel like that and their employer is has a an ethical outlook on life mm. Well, uh, oh, lots to talk, talk about there. Mm. Um, the death tech thing is quite interesting. And I'd like <laughs> Googling you to, it as we speak. Uh, yeah, I'd like you to define that. I don't think you can Google it, Paul, because I don't think there is such a thing. Um, but, but, but this quality of life as you come towards the end of your life, I think, is what we, is what we mean, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Mm. I think it's really interesting. Um, so thank you very much to Paul Miller of Bethnal Green Ventures. And uh, if you want to find out about Bethnal Green Ventures, surprisingly enough, you need to go on BethnalGreenVentures.com. Um, and I presume you've got another round uh, that's happening a couple of times a year if people want to try and get on to your accelerator program. Yep, we're going to be opening up applications in the next couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, what we good would, timing uh, it is that you're on here. We'd love then. to hear from people. Mm. And 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 that is a twelve-week accelerator program. It doesn't cost you anything to go on it. No, nope, you just you, you just get chosen. Yeah, and you one get of the uh, twenty thousand pounds worth of investment, which we uh, which we make at the beginning of the program for those who are selected. And that's great. And you, you and more importantly, you really get um, intensive mentoring and support to, to really help your idea come to life. That, that's, that, that's the key bit, isn't it? Yeah, we, um, well, we really push people forward, but we hope to do that in a supportive way as well. Yeah. So, so go on there, BethelGreenAdventures.com. And uh, thank you to Paul Armstrong for joining me. Uh, anything that you want people to check out this week? Uh, obviously your book... Yeah. disruptive technologies <laughs> and you, I'd publicist. recommend that but anything else that you'd like to draw attention to uh, check out week? TNN the new normal hereforth.com forward slash TNN it's the global futures slack channel uh, and if you're in London come to the uh, events that we're scheduling as you should as mm. you should keep up to date with all sorts of things that's going on so you've been listening to the Tech Talk show um, we're syndicated dozens of radio stations. We're on lots of people's blogs and all sorts of other things. Can't even mention how many there are, um, from America to uh, Europe. Um, and I'd just like to say thank you once again to my fellow presenter, Paul Armstrong. And if you want to recommend any future guests or you want to tell us what death tech is, that'd be quite handy, uh, please do uh, get in touch with us via Twitter on at Tech Talk Show UK. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to techtalkshow.co.uk. Have a good week.